0: Sentire media.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. La mula de
2: Farenzo, su de-
1: Interview episode: The Massacre of the Foibe and the Istrian Exodus with Roberta Alessandra Belulovic. La mula de- Here is 1943. We are in Istria, and the Italian government, which had controlled the area until then, had announced the armistice with the Allies. Tito's Slavic partisans were advancing. In all of this upheaval, a young girl had very different things on her mind. 24 year old Norma Cossetto was, as usual, whizzing around on her bike every day, trying to get her university dissertation finished. The title was L'Istria Rossa" Red Istria, but it had nothing to do with politics. Indeed, the red was that of the peculiar rock formations in the area due to the high level of bauxite, a reddish-looking mineral. Little did she know, how much the nature of the land would play a part in her future. One night, a group of Tito's partisans entered her family home to claim some of their property for the proletariat. They entered and shot above the beds, raiding the house. There, they noticed Norma. The next day, she was taken into custody, After being kept in different police barracks, she was then tied to a table with metal wire and raped all night by 17 different men. Afterwards, she was thrown, still alive, into a fibre, a deep natural crevice that is characteristic of the area, falling on top of a growing pile of bodies. Norma was one of the almost 11,000 victims of the massacre of the Foibe. To talk about the Istrian question, the Foibe, and the exodus of the Istrian people after the war, this evening we have Roberta Alessandra Belulovic on the program. Thank you, Roberta, for coming on.
0: Thank you, Mike.
1: It's a pleasure to have you here. So, Roberta is a person of Istrian-Italian origin, she has worked in the past with the Associations for the Rights of the Istrian People. So let, let's start by analysing that word, that identity. What does that mean, Roberta, to be an Istrian Italian?
0: Good question. I, the best way I can think of to describe it is it means that people who feel as I do, who identify as I do, are neither fish nor fowl. Oh yeah. uh, Istria one of the things is that Istria has never been a country, but it has been ruled by many countries, starting with ancient Rome and, and even before and the Venetian Republic and France, Austria-Hungary, Italy, Yugoslavia, and on and on. Remembering, of course, that the very longest part of Istrian history, I think, actually I shouldn't say that because it may have been ancient Roman for longer, but certainly more recently. Istria was part of the Venetian Republic for more than nine hundred years, and there is a cultural heritage, um, a traditional heritage, a linguistic heritage, and at the same time, Istrians are extremely multiethnic and multilingual. So, what is what what makes a person Italian? I think, is a really good question. And if you say that heritage and tradition and culture make you Italian, well then, certainly my family and those Istrians who identify as Italian are. And we are, in fact, um, at least partly Italian, if certainly not 100%. But who's 100% of anything? That's very true, yeah. I think it's what you you think you are. Um, And then there are so few... So, quote unquote, real Eastrians left in Eastria. We are all over the world. It's so rare to come across um an Eastrian. These days that when I go there fairly frequently and when I do go there and I see friends, sometimes they like to introduce me to people I haven't met before and they will take me aside and they'll say to me, well, they are very Istriani, (laughs) real, real Istrians, meaning those like us whose families have been in Istria for generations.
1: For the listeners who are not quite sure exactly geographically, how would we define Istria now?
0: Excellent. It, it is now partly Slovenia, mostly Croatia. It was uh, part of the former Yugoslavia after the Second World War. Before that, it was Italy. Before that, Austria, Hungary, uh, and, and on and on. And it is a peninsula that is geographically and, and has been very compromised in the past because of its geography, because it is Across the Adriatic from Venice, right around the corner, so to speak, um, by land from Trieste, and Slovenia is above it. And, and so, of when course, somebody
1: comes and they ask, "Okay, well, uh, what's your heritage?" and what's your answer to them? Then,
0: <laughs> well, exactly, what do you say? I, normally, I say I'm Italian because if you tell people you're Istrian, they don't e- even know what you're talking about. So, so I would say I'm Italian, and then they say, "Well, why doesn't your your surname?" end in a vowel. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then you have to explain that. And normally, what, what I'll say, unless I really want to get into it, because it is a long, complicated story. But if I, if I don't want to get into it, I'll say, well, you know, if you're from the northeast of Italy, there are lots of names that don't end in a vowel, yes, and you kind of leave it at yeah. that.
1: Yeah. And so you were saying before that you, you've been to history, that you've met people there. What effect have those trips had on you? <sighs>
0: Wow. Um, Varying effects over the years in some strange way that I I really cannot explain, except that um, my grandmother was remained. She sent my mother here, but she remained, even though my mother tried to get her to live here and become an American. She just hated America. So she even though she would have preferred to be in Italy, her option was to stay in Pola. And I guess because she was there and her sisters and brothers and nieces and nephews, some of them anyway, were there, it felt like home. And when I first went there, I was a child and I didn't. Pick, I mean, I picked up on the strangeness, it, it, culturally speaking. It felt strange because not everybody spoke our language, but enough people did, and there were enough Eastrians that identified very much as we do there at the time to really make it feel like home. And so it has always felt like home to me, and it has changed so much over the years. I went through the communist years, uh, we bypassed the war years, and then and then we we returned after the war when it had become croatia and and watched it change and it still feels like home but all of those people who made it home are gone almost almost everyone yeah every time i go there there's there are fewer people to see
1: okay because all the the, older the older generations uh their voices slowly being lost there so yes going back in time to these voices to these past generations? What, what actually happened in Istria during the Second World War?
0: Well, um, before, I, before I answer that, I can't say from obviously personal experience what happened. The only thing I know is my family's story, which is my story, and our friends, of course, stories, which have become part of my story as well. So it's not book learning. And I have read some, and some of the things I've read support this, and some bear no resemblance to these stories. And I I feel that Istrians are actually the the epitome, the living proof that history is written by the victors, because Istria was the loser. Yeah. No question about that. So back to, to answering your question. Istria, from what I have gleaned from family conversations, suffered very much under fascist rule, suffered very much because of the depression, and it was very, very poor. Nevertheless, despite the fact that many of these people were not fascists, They always considered themselves Italian, and in fact, my mother's family had um, relocated from a a village near Cremona two or three hundred years ago, but nevertheless, there is always that identity, and they kept that identity, and I think the mistake that people make and made at that time as well is that if you identify as Italian, you're a fascist.
1: And you were saying that your family were, were definitely not fascists. Oh,
0: they were socialists. At least my mother's family were socialists. I don't think my father's family was political at all, but they were definitely not fascists. They were from the eastern side of Eastia, so even less so than people on the West Coast who very much identified as Italian. Uh, in any case, uh, my mother at the time was a child at school. She, she, she was born and grew up uh, in under the fascist regime. And the children, just as they were in, in Nazi Germany, the children were indoctrinated to report any irregularities to the schools and to the priest or to whomever. And um, my mother told me, Of course, she found out many years later that her family, when she would come into the room, would talk about anything but politics or or their beliefs because they were terrified that she would turn them in. That's what these children
1: were taught to do. Avoid running the risk of children turning their parents in in in, in good old 1984
0: style. Uh, Exactly. She never did this, uh, of course, and and she she completely relearned her... um, her thinking when she came here. And she did come here very young, so she was able to do that. Uh, but the fear was there, so that was part of the war experience. Her f- and, and I think this is a really important story, uh, certainly an important story in my family about the war experience, because even though they considered themselves Italian, her first cousin became a partigiano. He was a partisan at 15 years of age. He was captured by the Nazis And became the youngest prisoner of war in Dachau and survived eight months at the end of the war by hiding under dead bodies. When the camp was liberated, I've forgotten who liberated Dachau, but easy enough to find out. He walked home. This is about… from from
1: Dachau all the way down to… From Dachau
0: to Pola, to Pola, which is at the bottom of Istria. He, this is maybe 600 kilometers, depending on which way you walk, 375-ish miles. Took him over two weeks, and when he got home, he walked into Piazza Foro, and who's there but his father? Goodness. And he, of course, he calls out, Papa, Papa, and his father looked right through him. Didn't he? He, he didn't had, recognize him. He didn't recognize him. He had no idea who he was. And yet... Now he was also he also remained along with my grandmother and and his father etc right into the 21st century remaining in Pola he spoke Polizan, which is the italian version of you know, the Italian dialect, because there are Slavic dialects yeah, as well. So the
1: Istrian version of Italian, let's
0: say. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, or let's say the Istrian version of Venetian. Mm-hmm. Really. Yeah. Um, he, he read Italian newspapers exclusively. He watched Italian television exclusively. He identified as Italian. So he was a partisan. So how does that make him a fascist?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And so. I think
0: it's a perfect example of how people generalize and really don't know what they're talking about.
1: In the introduction, I mentioned the word "foiba," which has become representative of many of the atrocities that were committed in Istria in 1943 and 1945. Could you tell us something more about what that word means?
0: Do you want me to describe the physical properties of a foiba?
1: Yeah, I mean, for our listeners who don't know what they are, to start with, and sort of your experience, I know that you've also seen some.
0: I have. I've seen one, and that was very impressive but I'll start with what a foiba is so istria is a very rocky country and a foiba is part of this rock formation it's it's as I read I, I actually looked up the exact definition it's a deep Natural sinkhole, which is a collapsed portion of bedrock above an open space. So, if you can imagine a bottle, uh, the foiba is usually narrow at the top, has a neck, and then opens out at the bottom. So, it, now the foiba I've seen. Does not look like that. Or maybe it does, but it's so huge, you can't even tell. It's just absolutely enormous. And that is the foiba of what we called Pizino, which is now called Pazin. It is absolutely enormous. And there's a river at the bottom. You can hear the river running through it. And at the toward the very end of the war, um, my nonna uh, from Pola, Nonna Anna was her name, had an experience that frightened her so much that she did not even mention it for 25 years Wow! when she, when she finally told the story to my mother. It may, might have even been more than 25 years, but let's say at least a couple of decades, yeah, two or three yeah. decades. At that point, my mother, it, because I was not present, I don't think she would have told the story had I been present. My mother said the first thing she did was pull down the shades and then she would only talk about it in a whisper. This is how frightened she was so many years later that it really made no difference whatsoever. Although, of course, they were still denying that it had happened. It, it, so, toward the end of the war, she was staying with her sister and her sister's husband, who had an olive grove in a in a rural area called Filipana, which is now Filipin, um, which is in the interior of Istria toward the south. And because her sister's husband was terminally ill, she was helping out and staying there for a while. One afternoon, Nonna walked more than 25 kilometers, which in miles would be 15 or more miles, to the closest pharmacy, which was in Pizino, in Pazin, to get him something because he was in terrible pain. It was getting dark, and she heard screams and moans and shouting and and in the distance and she stopped and she didn't know what to do or which way to go and and all of a sudden a partisan who had been hiding behind some trees jumped out and he challenged her demanding to know what she was doing there where was she going and what was what was her purpose why was she there and she somehow had the presence of mind because she was, as you can imagine, absolutely. She thought it was her, you know, those were her last moments. Yeah. She managed to tell him her story and why she was there enough to arouse his sympathy. And what he said to her was, Signora, you have heard nothing and you have seen nothing. Go now. Do not ever pass this way again and do not Ever tell anyone what you've seen or heard here tonight? Not ever. And it took her decades to actually tell that story.
1: Wow. And, and only in a whisper, you said she could then tell it. Only you know, in a decades whisper. Decades after she was far from danger, still then.
0: Exactly. Making sure that the shades were drawn so nobody could look in the window. Now, what those sounds were, were the, sc- and of course she knew this. It was denied that these things were happening, so you had to pretend that they were not happening. And and they were the screams and the moans of the people being thrown into the foiba. And what I have read, this is not um, from her or from anyone I know, but I have read that what they would do is sometimes they would tie a line of people together, one behind the other, or two by two And then create a a line and they would shoot the first person in line who would tumble into the foiba, taking the rest down as this person fell. And of course, uh, can you imagine it's 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 chilling. And women were murdered in that way as well after, as you know, being violated in in many ways. And, you know, nobody deserves to die like that. Not if they're Italians or Croats or fascists or, or anything.
2: Especially
1: if their only fault is their their ethnicities.
0: Correct, correct.
1: Definitely, yeah, yeah. And one of the details is that very often they were tied together with metal wire as well. Oh. So you can imagine oh. that. Oh. And unfortunately, the the fiber, terrible as they were, weren't uh, the end of it because after the thousands that were killed in the fiber, we have the diaspora of the Istrian people. So, w- were your parents involved in that?
0: They were not um, by great good luck, my paternal grandmother um, had became a widow, and she was able to emigrate to the united states and My father uh, went uh, some years later because she was not allowed to take him, but some years later, when he was still a child, he was called to the united states and my mother My grandmother was a wise lady and although she experienced what she experienced after my mother was gone, she knew what was happening and what was about to happen and what might happen to a young girl becoming a teenager. And she sent her here. Um, Her brother was already here and was able to sponsor my mother. So she came here as a girl also. So uh,
1: diasporas, unfortunately, have been part of human history. You know, people have been displaced from their homes, from their countries. What was different about this diaspora?
0: The Istrian diaspora is different, first of all, because very few people know about it. It is virtually unknown, and by many who know it, it is discounted. Istria has never been a country, so that, of course, is, is part of the issue. It's small, and I think also... All the the bad feeling that had grown up among the various factions during the war, before the war, after the war, was then dumped on these people who had lost everything. It, it's it's criminal. I think the best, at least the best example I can think of, is the 1947 Treno de la Vergogna. Hmm.
1: The train of shame.
0: Correct. And... This was a train going from Pola through Trieste, uh, Ancona, Bologna, on to La Spezia. And as the refugees from Istria, remembering that these were Italians, they were Italian nationals, as the train pulled into Bologna, these refugees were spat upon. They were stoned. They had their children's milk thrown at them. The food that was collected for them thrown in the garbage. These people were starving. They had lost everything, and it's it, it's to me it, the story just chokes me up. I I know no one who was on that train, but that's incredible. It, it's just yeah. it. Yeah, there's nothing you can say about that. And and this is the story of the Eastrians and this is the story of the diaspora. It's the diaspora nobody wants to know about.
1: And and we're talking uh, estimates about 350,000 people.
0: Correct. 300 to 350,000 is the estimate. And interestingly enough, this is an aside, but I think it's interesting. Pola was on the West Coast, is on the West Coast, and the West Coast was traditionally Italian. Of course, it's closest to Venice, closest to Trieste. Yeah. I have read an estimate that the population of Pola was about 80,000 before the war, and after the war, after the diaspora, the population had gone down to two or 3,000. Wow.
1: You mentioned before that history is written by the victors, and obviously you seem to have a very critical view of how history has portrayed the whole uh, Istrian issue. What are your feelings about how it has been portrayed in history?
0: I think in general, we are taught to think of history as fact and from from all of this from hearing these stories from owning my istrianity if there is such a word i've come to believe that history is not fact it's perception and it's personal so i've been of course talking about my perceptions of Eastern history and and how istrians have been taught and and it's true that i i i am critical of it and and you might hear other stories similar to mine and some that are, let's say, at the other end of the spectrum. But does that make me right? And does that make me, does that make them wrong? Everyone, from my perspective now, everyone's point of view has validity. And you'll never hear two versions that are in 100% agreement. And so yes, history is told from the point of view of the victor. At times it's not even history, it's fake news, it's completely fabricated. So I no longer think of history as facts, and there is no way to know the facts of the Estrian experience from this distance. So I think all it is is personal history and and how it affects the individuals, or at least that's all you can know. And you don't even know if, if that's true. People who experience the diaspora, they don't know the history necessarily, they just know their experience. So I've come to believe that history is simply experience.
1: Well, you seem to feel very strongly about it still. How does that affect you today? Good question.
0: Because my mother, who, as I said, had come here as a young girl, had yearned to go home and couldn't because the war was raging, I I, I in some ways have absorbed her pain because it was very painful for her. And I was with her when I was a child the first time she returned many years later. And it was, it was sad. And there's, there's always, that's the thing about it. There's, some, there's this deep sadness. And I, it, interestingly enough, I feel more sad when I'm talking about it, a, as to you now, than when I go there. Because it's not the same place. First of all, it's changed very much over Yes, I people um, learn to move
1: on, don't they, really?
0: Well, that's right. Yeah. People do move on. And you move on also. Because there's no point in living in the past. And yet there is this nostalgia. I think there's no other word for it. There's this nostalgia for this place that may never have even existed, this place that exists only in your heart.
1: And you view, well, I think anyone would view this whole Istrian question as, as a great injustice done to the people that were involved. Do you feel that anything has been done in some way to rectify the injustice? So, for example, the fact that on Sunday after so many years here in italy we will be celebrating the giorno del ricordo which is sort of a commemoration of the fojbo massacre in particular and the istrian question
0: i do think that that is perhaps in in a sense the most important thing that's happened because it's an acknowledgement and it was never acknowledged We were never acknowledged as Italians. We were, I mean, before the war, yes, but afterwards, everyone turned their backs on us. The Italians in particular, that's a hard thing to forget. And there have been other attempts over the years. In the 70s, there were agreements, there was a treaty, the Treaty of Osimo, and then later on, um, certain rights were given to the Italian minority, Um, the, the, the cities and towns, at least on the West Coast, the ones that had been predominantly Italian. Are known not only by their Croatian names; they're also owned by their uh, known by their Italian names. Uh, there is a mandate that I have experienced is not necessarily followed, but but the mandate was uh, that every government office have an employee who speaks Italian mm-hmm. for the Italian minority. All um, Istrians have the option of going to Italian school. So that's really good uh, f- you know, for anybody who remains, and I know plenty of people who took advantage of that. And, and then more recently, something I've just found out about and which I have not read about and don't know the particulars of is that there has been some sort of accord in the 21st century giving Italians who were living in Istria in the 1940s and can prove that they spoke Italian at that time, the right to be recognized as Italian. Oh, that's interesting. That, so using
1: language as a, yes, a, a criterion for, for yes. citizenship, let's say.
0: But you know what? I, I asked a question. I said, well, I have my father's report cards from primary school. Oh, well, that doesn't prove that he could speak Italian in the 1940s <laughs> because, I mean, so how, how helpful is that?
1: Yes, because really, you know, under under a fascist regime that made a real point of making sure everybody spoke Italian, what else could he have spoken?
0: Exactly, exactly, and and he would forget what the language he learned in primary school. Very, but very uh, no, unusual. they won't, they won't accept that, and and that's that's part of the problem with all these things. It, it's it feels like lip service more than anything. At some point early in this century. Reparations were actually offered to Istrians. However, a cousin in Desenzano saw an ad in a newspaper, and the government was asking uh, Istrians who had lost their properties to contact them. So she collected all the information for her branch of the family and sent all that information into the government. Some of that branch of the family had emigrated to the United States, and. they received a telephone call from the Italian government asking them for certain information about where they lived, where they had lived, what they had lost, etc. When they fled from Pola during the diaspora, my my cousin's parents had owned half a house in conjunction with uh, a family member and a vegetable shop. Eventually, the government, after collecting all of this information, compensated them three thousand dollars for these properties. I know it's not a lot, but it's an acknowledgement. It's they actually recognized this and they recognized that they were owed something. So I think that was a, a nice, a nice acknowledgement and um, made, certainly made them feel much better about things.
1: So. In a certain sense, things are moving in the right direction, although many of the people who suffered are no longer with us.
0: Well, sadly, that that is the case. And in fact, their parents, who were the ones who had owned it, were gone by the time the monies came in. But that's still, it was a recognition.
1: So what more do you think the governments involved or other organizations could do?
0: I don't really think there is anything. I think it's too late there's There are very few people left, um the people who who are still alive were children at the time, and I think they've gone very far past that. I, an apology would have been a sincere apology would have been lovely and I think the Giorno del Ricardos uh, really is the best thing they could have done and that they did do i don't i I, I honestly can't think of anything else that would really make a difference at this point.
1: Well, you said before that uh, you were going to give us a a personal, a family point of view and not a book point of view, and considering that, you know, anybody who's interested can pick up a book or Google the history in question, I really think that you've given us a really special opportunity to give us your personal and your family story, which you really can't get from a book or from a web page. So thank you so much for coming on the program and telling us this important story.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been really a pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Thanks again, and thanks to everyone for listening.
1: I hope you found that interview interesting. If you would like some more information, remember you can get in touch by writing to hello at ahistoryofitaly.com or clicking through to our social media at the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com. Until next time, thanks again very much for listening and arrivederci.
0: Sentire media.
2: Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Centitti Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy.